Welcome to the RHA Podcast. My name is Richard Triggs, and today's guest is David Pick, CEO of the Australian Institute of Management. It's wonderful to have you along today, and I hope you enjoy this conversation with David. I've known him for some time now. He's a great guy and uh, has had a very interesting career and some wonderful philosophies on life. And certainly the organisation that he leads, the Australian Institute of Management, is quite an iconic brand here. And David is leading that organisation into the future with a lot of change during his fairly short tenure to date of just over 12 months. Before I introduce David to you properly, let me briefly introduce myself for those people who are unfamiliar with me. My name is Richard Triggs and I'm the managing partner of Arate Executive. And we recruit CEOs, senior leaders and non-executive directors for our clients throughout Australia. We also provide a range of career coaching and advocacy services for senior executives and non-executive directors who are actively looking for a new role. So if I can assist you in recruiting into your own organisation, or help you in achieving your next career opportunity, I'd welcome the opportunity to have a chat to you. Sit back now and let me introduce to you David Pick. David Pick was born in England and completed a Bachelor of Arts before commencing his career in the graduate program with Cadbury Schweppes. He then worked with Hewlett-Packard, which brought him to Australia, where he's worked for a number of organisations, both in the IT consulting space and more recently in the not-for-profit space, specifically working as the National Head of Marketing and Communications for Canteen, then the Chief Executive Officer for the St George and Sutherland Medical Research Foundation, then Head of Australia and New Zealand for the Association of Chartered Certified Accountants, and now having been in his current role for just over 12 months as Chief Executive Officer with the Australian Institute of Management. David now lives in Brisbane with his wife and two children. Sit back and enjoy this conversation with David Pick. Okay, so we are rolling now. So, David, welcome to the Arate podcast. It's uh, great to have you along, and we're sitting in your office here, but it's almost like a ghost town because uh, you guys are about to move out. We are, yes. It does look a bit like a ghost. It looks cross between a ghost town and a, and a building site, doesn't it, Richard? It, it does. I uh, Normally, this is quite a hustle and bustle of activity mm. here. But uh, uh, So, for the people who are listening in, David, just to begin with, why don't you tell us about your current professional responsibilities? Yeah, sure. So, I'm the um, chief exec of AIM or AIM or the Australian Institute of Management and I have been for uh, the past 14 months now. Uh-huh. Okay. So I run the organisation and um, I guess for those people that don't know AIM the best way to describe my role is that I'm the first chief exec of the um, nationalised AIM because we were a federated organisation mm-hmm. so the federated states collapsed into one national organisation and then we divested of our training and education organisation. So I'm the first chief exec of the national membership body of the Australian Institute of Management, based here out of the Brisbane office. Mm-hmm. 
And when you were appointed into the role, uh, you were in Sydney, but then moved with the role uh, to Brisbane. Was there a particular reason why they wanted the role situated here? Was that more for your lifestyle? Or well, who wouldn't want to? Who wouldn't want to move from Sydney to to Brisbane? Look, I think um, there are a number of reasons. Um, I, I won't. Um, I certainly won't beat around the bush and and, and mislead anyone. I thought living to bringing my family up to Brisbane was a really fantastic opportunity. Um, there was also the fact that when AIM, AIM nationalised and, and collapsed down into from six organisations into one national organisation, it became very Sydney-centric. Mm -hmm. And um, just because I was based down there and I recruited my leadership team in Sydney, it, it, it started to look like the organisation was based in Sydney mm -hmm. and, you know, and, and the old New South Wales branch of AIM. And that probably wasn't the right balance for the organisation. And certainly um, anybody listening that knows AIM would know that we, as an organisation, have been particularly strong historically in Queensland. And um, I was really faced with two options, Richard. I could, I could ask one of my leadership team to relocate or I could do it myself. Mm -hmm. And I really wanted to show the organisation that there's no head office mm -hmm. as such. Mm -hmm. We are a national body, we're a membership body, and we all need to be based where our members are. So essentially I sold up in, in, um, in Sydney, packed my kids and um, my possessions into a car and, and drove up and relocated up mm -hmm. here. And uh, now you've relocated uh, personally, it's about mm -hmm. time to relocate professionally, uh, <laughs> thus the, uh, the empty offices. Yeah, I mean, it, it's an interesting, um, it's been an interesting 12 months for, for AIM because we, we divested of the training and education um, business and we recast ourselves uh, back to where we started 75 years ago which is as the peak body for managers and leaders. Now, the interesting thing about that journey has been that many of our locations are or were set up as training and education hubs. Right. You know? So essentially, this office that you and I are sitting in now, and you know this office very, very well, mm -hmm. is full of training rooms. Sure. And as a, as a, as a membership body, um, we need to offer something very, very different to our membership. Mm -hmm. We don't need big conference rooms. I think there are nine or ten rooms in here. Um, in addition to that, um, this building is not particularly set up for a progressive, forward-thinking um, uh, example of good management and leadership. Mm -hmm. I'll give you an example. Um, there are three floors in this building and there's no lift. Mm -hmm. So I can't recruit a member of staff that would, would be in a wheelchair. Mm -hmm. um, I can't, uh, I can't even have speakers that come along that might be in mm -hmm, wheelchairs mm -hmm. because we have to carry them down mm -hmm. stairs. So we decided as an organization that we needed to be the kind, we needed to be based in premises that reflected the kind of organization that we were. Sure. So we sold the building and mm -hmm. we're moving down into the city center. Mm -hmm. In actual fact, this morning I was at um, the final project meeting uh, before we move into our new building the week after next. Okay, wow, yeah. and it's looking pretty exciting. It looks sensational. So we're moving to um, Creek Street, uh, right in the, the, I think they call it the Golden Triangle okay. in, here in Brisbane, and um, the office space has been specifically designed around the values and the mission of the organisation. And um, I think the members of AIM are going to be very pleasantly surprised when when they mm -hmm. see the office. Why? Because it has a fabulous uh, members lounge. It has a member hot desking area where members can come along and relax and do some work. Um, and then they can go and grab a coffee in the lounge and sit there and read the paper, have meetings in there. 
None of that was available here, mm -hmm. and um, that's right in the heart of the city centre. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm, I'm incredibly excited. Um, we've modelled it a little bit on the on the kind of Qantas lounge type feel, okay, yeah. so it's very relaxing, very open, and uh, right in the heart of the city. Mm -hmm. So it absolutely reflects the organisation okay. that we want to be. Yeah, I look forward to uh, going along for my first visit. And so, for you know, as you say, AIM has had a you know, quite a substantive change over recent time. Mm. Uh, so if somebody was brand new to the organisation and didn't have that sort of historical historical perspective, then, you know, what would you describe as, you know, what AIM does? I think it's, um, I think that's a fabulous question. I get asked that, um, I guess that all, I get asked that all the time, you know, by friends when I have dinner or have a barbecue or something, you know, what, I'm the chief exec of AIM and if, if people, uh, don't know that we're no longer in the training and education business. Mm -hmm. That they either expect me to say, "Oh, we provide training and education courses." We don't, or they ask, "Well, what is AIM now?" Mm -hmm. And it's it's very very simple. Uh, we're the peak body for managers and leaders. So I believe, um, if you're a manager or a leader out there in the in the Australian workforce, you need to be a member of of your peak professional body because we advocate for and um, shout about good management and leadership practice. And um, we'll perhaps talk a little bit later about what that actually means. Um, but you know, if, you, if you're a professional manager or a leader and you've got a team of people or you're looking to be a manager or a leader, we're the peak body that represents your interests. Mm -hmm. And uh, my view is, as a, as a leader or a manager in Australia, there are certain points in your career when you need formal education and training. Mm -hmm. And um, there are a number of organizations that provide that, including AIM edu Education and Training, which is the body that we've divested of. Mm -hmm. But uh, other than those times, we believe there's a journey for management and leadership, and AIM is there to handhold you on that journey. So mm -hmm. we provide a whole number of tools, knowledge, information for managers and leaders. It's, mm -hmm. It's in many senses um, a trade union with a small T and a small U right. for managers and leaders. Okay, great. Well, I'm certainly very keen to come back and talk about that in more detail. But, you know, where I like to go here in the podcast is really talk about, you know, where it all began and, yeah, sure. you know, perhaps uh, where you were born and your early life, mum, dad, brothers and sisters, etc. Sure. Okay. Well, um, so um, I was born in, as you can probably tell from my accent, I was born in Manchester in, in England and... Um, I, uh, my dad was a was a teacher, a music teacher actually, and okay. um, my um, my mum was what you would describe as a homemaker, I suppose these mm -hmm. days. Back in those days, she stayed at home and, and looked after the three kids. My uh, my sister, who's a lawyer, and my brother, who's a physics teacher okay. at, at high school. Uh, my family still live in in Manchester in the house uh, that I was born in. Right. And um, my brother and sister live close by in the north of England. Right. And were you uh, number one, or where did you? I, I was the middle. The I middle. The, the, okay. the awkward middle. Right. The awkward middle child. Okay. And we just lived. Uh, um, I went to the local comprehensive school in 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 uh, in Manchester, and um, uh, at the age of eighteen, I, I left school mm -hmm. and I went to university, mm -hmm. and uh, I, I, I was very very lucky in that I managed to get into Cambridge University. Mm -hmm. And I was the first person from my comprehensive school um, to, to get into Cambridge. Right. And um, I studied um, uh, social and political science mm -hmm. at, at Cambridge with a specialism in psychology. Okay. And so what do you think it was about you that enabled you to achieve what nobody had done previously? Well, actually, I think um, the interesting thing when I look back... Um, 
the, the one thing that I, I, in fact, I've just come back from Manchester about two weeks ago and I was at my 30-year school reunion. Oh, I just had mine last yeah. year. <laughs> so, so we all met in the local pub right. and uh, half the people were still drinking in the local pub <laughs> the last 30 years. Um, so, and the interesting thing, uh, talking to my, my old friends from school, um, and the one thing they all said about me was that I really enjoyed school. Right. So I don't think there was actually anything, um, there were no secrets or, or, or anything other than the fact that I absolutely enjoyed those pivotal two years before university, mm -hmm. which in the UK are A-levels. Yes. And I just thoroughly enjoyed those two years, and I did very, very well in my right. A-levels. Okay. So you enjoyed the study element, whereas some of us enjoyed right. more the going to parties and drinking and chasing right. girls element. Yeah, no, it's interesting because... Um, <laughs> Because uh, I definitely wouldn't have said that I was the very studious type. I just happened mm -hmm. to pick subjects that I really enjoyed, mm -hmm. English and history and politics and mm -hmm. psychology and those kind of things. And I just did extremely well in my A-levels. And there was no, there were no, there's no secret to it at all mm -hmm. other than I just really worked, I, I worked mm -hmm. really hard. And well, it, when all my friends that I met a couple of weeks ago were all in the pub, mm -hmm. I was just working because I really enjoyed it. Right. So I, um, I got offered a... Um, entrance scores to get into Cambridge I got offered four A's mm -hmm. which means that you had to get four A's in your A levels and I did right so it was um, it, in many ways people perhaps didn't expect it's very hard to get four A's of mm -hmm. course and I mm -hmm. did mm -hmm. but as soon as I got the four A's I was guaranteed entrance into right. into Cambridge so there was no secret other than unfortunately just good old hard work sure. you know and so what uh, uh, was it about the particular subjects you chose to study at Cambridge that uh, appealed to you? I don't know. I think um, I, I chose um, I chose uh, politics, uh, history, and English, and I I just really enjoyed English, and I enjoyed reading the books, and mm -hmm. I enjoyed history. It was kind of modern history, nineteen mm sixties -hmm. Cold War, that kind mm -hmm. of stuff. And then politics, I was just interested in politics. It was just um, I'd co I came I come from quite a political um, family, I suppose. My dad had been a local councillor, and, okay, and um, a trade union mm -hmm. activist in the in the um, the white collar trade unions, mm -hmm. so not not some of the more sure. um, industrial traditional trade unions. So he was in the teaching unions. Mm -hmm. So I, I definitely had an interest in politics. Um, so no, I just um, when I think back, it was really just the fact that when some of my friends were out in the pub, I was at mm. home reading books because I kind of enjoyed it. You yeah, know? I didn't, you didn't find it a chore. You know, but choosing those subjects. Did you have a, a vision as to what your career would be? Yeah, because I did. obviously it's turned out to be completely different. Hasn't yeah, it? yeah, yeah. Actually, the funny thing is, I um, I either wanted to go into politics, or what, I always thought that that might be a long term mm. um, goal. I remember I, w I was growing up. I think we're similar age. I was growing up in the UK in the time of Margaret Thatcher. Mm -hmm. So I was um, uh, my my childhood in the north of England was about miners' strike. Um, Arthur Scargill and some of the big Thatcher revolution, you know, the, mm -hmm. the, the Thatcherism revolution that was happening. So I was very interested in politics and I thought I might go into politics. But immediately after university, my absolute desire was to be a social worker. Right. And um, interestingly, when I look back over my career, I haven't, um, there's always been a social element right. to, to my career and we, we might get into that a little bit, but there's always been, there's always been a heart, if you mm -hmm. like. And, and, um, and I was never going to be in accounting or anything mm. like that. It was always going to be something that was to do with society and mm -hmm. and 
for, for want of a, a better phrase, the kind of greater good. You mm-hmm. know? And you're probably a bit of a Billy Bragg fan. Oh, I'm a huge Billy Bragg fan. <laughs> <laughs> I saw Billy Bragg at the Opera House last year, actually. Oh, really? Fantastic. <laughs> yes, he, uh, you know, he's quite iconic in that sort of whole space, isn't he? Oh, yeah. And the very first time, actually, I saw Billy Bragg was at... Um, uh, he formed a band with Paul Weller called Red Wedge right. during the, the Thatcher years. Okay. So I used to go to Stockport Town Hall and see Red Wedge play. So that's pre the jam or post? Pr- uh, at the same time as the jam, actually. Right, okay. Yeah, yeah. Right. In fact, yeah, actually, yeah. last week, would you believe, I was at the uh, Trifford. Oh, yeah? Um, on uh, Thursday night, I was at the Trifford watching from the jam. Right. Which was the the band with the bassist from the, Bruce Foxton from yeah, the Jam right. okay. has formed a band. So I'm still a big fan of the Jam, and those are those were my formative right. years. Uh-huh. You know? yeah. Well, as many listeners to the podcast <laughs> will know, I try and tie it back to music. Uh, Paul Patico, who's part owner of the Trifford and former manager right. of Powderfinger, he's been a guest on a there the you podcast. Go. <laughs> so there we go. I've been okay. rarefied company. You are <laughs> indeed. Okay, and so uh, what happened uh, when you uh, finished uni? Oh, okay, so. Um, so I um, I did my uh, three years at Cambridge, which were absolutely fantastic, and um, I then um, I then uh, what did I do? Oh, I know what I did. Um, <laughs> Would you I like went... to look at your resume? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm just <laughs> taking a sneaky look over there. Oh no, actually, I'll tell you what I did. Um, in the UK, there's a um, uh, I think it might be the same in Australia, but many of the big organisations do what's called a milk round, right? Where they go around all the major universities and recruit students yeah, sure. onto stu- graduate student programmes. Yeah. And I joined um, Cabri Schweppes, so I got picked up on the milk round at Cabri Schweppes, mm-hmm. and um, I did a two-year development programme at Cabri Schweppes where they send you around different departments. So where was your headspace? You're saying I want to be a social worker yeah. with a long-term view to, yeah. you know, being a politician, but up pops an opportunity at Cabri Schweppes. Yeah. So. Well, actually, by the time I'd finished university, the social work thing had diminished a little bit, and I was really veering towards HR. Okay. So I really wanted to get into HR, and and um, and uh, it was the classic I want to work with people type right. thing, which I think I may have said during my interview, which never goes down well, but it was to do with um, working in an organisation but representing the... Uh, the, 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 the the personnel employees. side of it, the employee right. side of yeah. it, that's right. So um, that was expressed uh, during the milk round and Cabri Schweppes took me on because they had some HR vacancies. Mm-hmm. And I ended up, uh, Cabri Schweppes then farmed me out and um, I worked for a subsidiary of Cabri Schweppes, which would you believe was Trebor Bassett. And um, my very first six months on the job, I worked on the licorice all sort production line right in the factory in Sheffield that made the Bertie Bassett licorice all sorts. Wow. So I did um, I did the night shift for about three months. But in HR? No, because they, they farmed you around oh, to see. different departments. Yep. You were always going to end up where sure. you where yeah. you wanted to be. Okay. But they put you through production, yeah. marketing, logistics, those yeah. kind of things. So um, I did uh, three months on the production line at, in Sheffield for, for Trebor Bassett and then I did three months in HR Okay. And then um, I ended up, um, I had a bit of a stroke of luck, and uh, most people's careers have elements of luck, don't mm-hmm. they? Um, somebody within the HR team at Trebor Bassett went on maternity leave. Mm-hmm. And after 12 months on the, on the graduate recruitment program, I was asked by the HR director whether I wanted to take that person's job for the period of maternity leave. Right. And she was the head of remuneration. Okay. So I became, I was 22 at the time, I became the acting mm-hmm. remuneration manager for mm-hmm. Trebor Bassett, which was looking at 
um, executive and managerial salaries in mm -hmm. the organization, okay. which was a very senior position. It was a stroke of luck. Uh, I just happened to have a very good relationship mm -hmm. with the HR director. So I act. So I was the remuneration manager mm -hmm. for 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 Trebor Bassett. Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so I, you sat in that for the full year. Um, I did. I sat. I did that for twelve months, and then, um, and then interestingly enough, um, I, I got uh, headhunted. Um, so I, I would have been twenty three or, or twenty four, and I got headhunted to be the head of remuneration for um, a building society, and uh, I guess this was my first. Um, example of what I would call poor management and leadership. Mm -hmm. I need to be a little bit careful whether I, I would I would express it as poor management and leadership. Um, but I I left uh, Trebor Bassett. I'd only been there for two years, and I joined um, a building society in in London, mm -hmm. and uh, I was their head of remuneration. And I lasted there for three weeks. Mm, okay. And I left. Um, it was a classic example of um, I made some mistakes, and and the key mistake I made was I didn't investigate the culture of the organisation before I joined. Mm -hmm. But it was really the start of me becoming obsessed, if you like, with management and leadership and organisational culture. Mm -hmm. So the building society or the the friendly society, uh, as as they were called, the building society that I joined. Um, was trying to transform itself from an old um, 19th century established uh, penny policy um, building society into something modern. Um, and they were right at the beginning of that journey. And um, that this became very, very evident to me on my first day in the job. Mm -hmm. So on my first day in the job, um, they had a huge office in Hoburn in central London on the corner of two major streets. So if you can imagine a big square um, gothic building with six floors and um, long corridors with lots of offices in it, um, I got off the tube at Hoban Tube Station and I walked into one side of the office and I was promptly told that I wasn't the right grade to walk in through that office door <laughs> and I had to go around the other right. side of the office. So okay. each, depending on your grade, you had an entrance to the office right. that you could walk in. And um, my boss was the head of HR for the organisation and uh, it, it in the first, the first morning, um, I was meeting with him. He was, he was telling me about the job. I was the head of remuneration. Um, the tea lady walked into his office with the big tea urn on the trolley, and she offered him a cup of tea, but not me. Right. Because I wasn't at the requisite right. grade to, okay. get a, to get a cup of tea. And um, it was all downhill from there <laughs> in that job. And I, look, I was 23. I'd gone from Trebor Bassett, which right. was a very modern you know, fast-moving consumer goods, yeah. um, shy, big shiny office mm. in, into this. And uh, I, I learned a number of things from that uh, from, from that experience because I, I left after three weeks because mm. there, was no, there wasn't a cultural fit. Mm -hmm. And so what did I learn? Uh, the first thing I learned was never make a move in your career for money. Mm -hmm. I, I made a move for money. The headhunter had called me and the salary was 50% above Trebor Bassett or whatever, right. which at the time, at the age of 23, sure. I thought it was absolutely sensational. So so um, n never move for money. And I, I can honestly say since that time, I've never moved mm -hmm. a, a role for, for financial reward. Um, the second thing is uh, culture is just as important as role. Mm. The job that you do is, is incredibly important, but the place that you work at is, is just mm -hmm. as important. Mm -hmm. And um, and then the third thing I learned was um, 
you never know what's around the corner mm. because um, I was in an awful spin when I decided to leave. Mm. I, I really didn't enjoy going into work. I couldn't, I couldn't cope with the very oppressive old world, very male and stale environment mm -hmm. at the building society. But of course, at the age of 24, resigning and not having a job, mm. you know, when you're living in a leased house and sure. you've got a car loan and all those kind of things. And um, the day after I left, I think I left on a Thursday or something like that, on a Friday, um, I got a call out of the blue from a recruitment consultant. Mm -hmm. And um, I have no idea to this day, I can't remember how, how he or, or even she, I, I can't remember, contacted me. But they asked me to go for an interview with Hewlett Packard. Okay. Now, at the time, if you were in HR, mm -hmm. Hewlett-Packard was the place you wanted to work. Why is that? Well, because it had something called the HP Way, mm -hmm. and the HP Way was a cultural framework that was really the underpinning of the organisation. And HP was the most progressive, um, uh, west coast of America, mm -hmm. top, top um, performing IT organisation, mm -hmm. you know, global... Um, their head office was in Bracknell, um, in the in the west of London. I lived in London at the time. Um, I had uh, the recruitment consultant call me on the Friday. I had the interview on the Monday, and I started on the Tuesday. Right. So I actually wasn't out of work at all. And and um, I think that that move to HP was probably the most transformative stroke of luck. Mm -hmm. that, but the most it was a stroke of luck. But it was the most transformative job that I've ever done. Mm -hmm. Um, so I took a role as a generalist HR manager mm -hmm. for, so I moved straight out of remuneration and I was the head of HR for the computer products division, which was the division. It was the yep. bit that was producing the PCs and the laptops yep. and the printers yep. and the finance and admin division. Right. And um, I, I stayed at, HP was responsible for a number of things. I stayed there um, for more than five years. They were the organization that transferred me from England to Australia. Mm -hmm. I moved from HR into sales and marketing. Mm -hmm. And it was just the most progressive, fabulous organization. Mm -hmm. I have many friends that still work at HP and um, I wish back in the, somewhere in my mind, I could, I could remember how the job came up and how the recruitment consultant got hold of me. I can just remember when I walked out of the building society, having said to my boss, I can't work here anymore because mm. there's no cultural fit. Mm. And then within four days, I'd walked into an organization. Mm. And as soon as you walked in, I knew this was the kind of place mm -hmm. that I wanted to work. Mm. And uh, moving from HR into sales and marketing is quite an unusual yeah. transition as yeah. well. So, uh, you know, why did that appeal to you? So I, I, um, I was the HR manager for the computer products division for about three years. And um, th I, th I think the thing that people need to remember about, and I'm sure it's the same, well, I know it's the same because so many of our members are in HR. Um, but back in, back in those days, there were very few organisations where HR was considered to be part of the, str the strategy setting mm -hmm. part of an organisation. Mm. It's absolute, it absolutely is the case now. But HP was one of the few people that were doing it. So mm. I sat on the leadership team of the computer mm. products organization. And um, this was at the time when HP was le the leader in computer mm. products. So this was the time when HP bought Compaq. Mm -hmm. And um, mm. so I, was, I, was, I worked for the head of the computer products organization, a guy called Alan Furness, who's one of the best leaders I've ever worked for. Uh, completely visionary, strategy-focused guy. Um, I worked directly for him, and I had a dotted line into the head of HR. And um, eventually, he invited me to join his organization. Mm -hmm. So I left HR, and I joined his business. 
And um, it was a very, very difficult transition, apart from um, I firmly believe that if an HR practitioner, an HR professional is doing their job right, what they're actually doing is sales and marketing. Because mm -hmm. you're selling and you're marketing the HR strategies and platforms sure. of the organization. You're selling yeah. and marketing the culture. Absolutely. I you think know. that, yeah, you've raised two interesting points there. Firstly, in relation to that one, every role is a sales That's role. Right. Even That's right. being a GP yeah. or being an accountant or, you know, working on reception, you're yeah. still selling your... Yeah services internally to that's stakeholders right. yeah that's right and i think that uh you know people have this uh massive resistance to sales being you know yeah. white shoes and you know shonky yeah. and but i mean we all have to sell Absolutely. Um, the other comment you made which i thought was quite interesting about hr you know having a far more strategic role which mm. i completely agree with however you'd be amazed how many uh organizational websites i'll go to where they'll show the entire executive leadership team except for the HR yeah, person, yeah, yeah. Uh, almost as if that person isn't regarded as being strategic or valued enough Absolutely. to be on the website, which I find, you know, in 2016, yeah. incredible, yeah. and yet still quite common. Yeah, no, no, I totally agree. And I think, um, I think HP, this was back in um, 93, 94, um, I think the great thing about HP was that HR was always at the table. We, we were at the table when, you know, when they were talking about the strategy of the organization mm -hmm. and when they were talking about taking the organization forward and where the organization needed to be. So Alan Furness was doing things like, um, this was at the time when the reseller model for computers mm -hmm. was kind of changing to the direct sales model. Mm -hmm. So we, we put in place the very first contact center um, for, for customers to be able to call HP directly. In the past, they just called the reseller. Yeah. And um, this was the time for any, um, I'm sure there's some supporters of uh, Tottenham Hotspur out there, but HP supported, did the shirt sponsorship, mm -hmm. sponsorship for Tottenham Hotspur. I was involved in those meetings because this was, this was getting into the retail strategy of the organization. Right. And, and um, no, I had a, I had an, in, I had a seat at the table and, mm. and it, and, uh, I saw the inner workings of the organization and I think Alan um, and and the other sales and marketing people saw that I could stand up on my feet and mm -hmm. I could argue my corner and I wouldn't you know I wouldn't back down if I thought I was right and and um, I could have a logical argument about and all of those things mm -hmm. are sales skills mm -hmm. and marketing skills you know and so if you loved HP so much you know it's five and a half six years in yeah. why did you exit oh well um, so so essentially what happened was I um, I became, I went through sales and marketing for a year or so, and um, I became the, the global account manager for Credit Suisse First Boston. Okay. So it was one of HP's biggest accounts, and I became the global account manager. And that put me in touch with people from around the world, you know, because I met all the global account mm -hmm. managers. And anyway, um, to cut a long story short, I fancied a move overseas. Mm. I really wanted... Um, I wanted to go and live somewhere else, and I, I went back to Alan, um, who headed up the computer products division, and I, I said to him, oh, look, I, I really fancy doing a stint overseas, and mm -hmm. HP is a global mm -hmm. organization. And he said, oh, well, where do you fancy going? And I said, oh, I don't know, maybe America, or... I remember saying America or South Africa. Right. And his, he actually said to me, he said, oh, Dave, look, I've, the best contact I've got is in Australia. Mm. And he said, of course, I know everybody in HP, because he was very mm -hmm. senior. And he said, but... The guy who heads up 
Hewlett Packard in Australia is a really good mate of mine. Mm. And uh, why don't I contact him and see if he's got any vacancies? And um, about two weeks later, I remember having a video conference interview with the head of, of Hewlett Packard in Australia, whose name was John Biskey. And I remember he was based in Melbourne. And partway through the interview, he turned his computer screen round to look out of the window. Right. And it must have been January. I think it was January. And uh, I was sitting in my office um, in London. So, so I had an office. In, uh, Hewlett Packard had an office in London. And uh, it was pouring with rain, it was dark, it was windy, it was terrible. And he turned the thing round. Of course, it's January right. in Melbourne. It was bright sunshine, sure. you know, those, Janu- those Melbourne days they get when it's 50 degrees. And um, he offered me the job. And um, Hewlett Packard loved that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. They loved moving people around. And, mm. and I left. So that was January. I got offered the job in Australia. So I joined the sales and marketing team, not based in Melbourne, by the mm-hmm. way, but based in Sydney, um, in North Ryde. And um, I left England on the 1st of April, um, 1997. Right. So, um, so I moved into a sales and, from a sales and marketing role in the UK mm-hmm. to, to Australia. And um, I came on a two-year contract. Mm-hmm. I, said to, I said to HP in the UK, look, I'll probably be gone for two years. Mm-hmm. And they said, yeah, that sounds about right. And 20 years later, I've, right. I've, I'm a citizen. And sure. I stayed, I stayed with HP in, the, in Australia for two years. Mm-hmm. And, um, and uh, I then left HP. Um, and what had happened was I'd, d- during my business that I did um, in sales and marketing, I met, um, I met a guy um, who became a very good friend of mine and still is, and he'd been offered a job as the chief exec of a new professional services business that was being set up. Mm-hmm. Um, so computer associates were setting up a consulting business, professional mm-hmm. services, and he'd been he'd been recruited as the first chief exec, and uh, he recruited me as as the marketing manager right. essentially. Right. Okay. Yeah. And uh, and so that was moving in into quite an unrelated industry. Yeah. Though. Right. But it but it was still IT and it was. Um, much of much of my role at, at HP had been in in professional services, mm-hmm. so I worked on some very big consulting deals. Mm-hmm. Um, one that many people would remember was um, NRMA moved head offices in Sydney. They moved from Clarence Street to George Street, mm-hmm. and HP managed that move for them. So I was heavily involved in that. Mm-hmm. So Computer Associates were setting up a consulting business. It was very very similar, and um, I left. And then the dot com bust right. happened, okay. and. Um, Look, I'll be really honest. At the time, many people would would know that um, I don't think the the culture of of computer. This is another example of um, of me not not really investigating the culture, although the, although I did at the time. But my understanding was that the business that was being set up, the computer uh, the computer associates professional services business, was being set up with a very very different culture mm-hmm. from the software business. Right. And um, the software business, computer associates back in those days in the late 90s had a bit of a reputation for being quite ruthless. Okay. Um, I don't think it is anymore, and I think they've changed the organisation, mm-hmm. they've changed a lot of the, the, the senior leaders and, and those kind of things. But the problem was once the, the dot-com boom happened, the organisations got merged again because mm-hmm. I think costs were being cut, and it just um, it didn't, um, it didn't suit me mm-hmm. um, particularly well to, to work there. Right, so off to PwC. Yeah, then I went to PwC, yeah. And um, look, my time at PwC was, uh, apart from, uh, from HP, in, if, I'm, if I'm thinking about the, um, the, 
the for-profit side of my career because mm -hmm. we're about to move on to the not-for-profit sure. side. Yeah. But the for-profit side of my career, I absolutely loved my time at PricewaterhouseCoopers. Mm -hmm. um, incredibly um, energetic, working with very, very smart people, very professional. Um, but working in... Uh, I worked, so I was basically the market development manager in the accounting business. Right. And um, there was something really, it's going to sound quite odd, I suppose, in a way, isn't it? But there was something very, um, very uh, energetic about working with accountants. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think it's this, they were so open to sales and marketing. Mm -hmm. I think, I think the, the, the really good partners at PwC realized that that wasn't where their skill was. Mm. So you were truly a business partner to mm -hmm. them, which is a little bit how HR was viewed at HP. Yeah. They saw the HR team as the business partners. So when I when I joined um, PricewaterhouseCoopers, I worked for um, I worked for the head of their accounting division, um, Rahul Chowdhury, um, who was absolutely brilliant, fantastic, inspirational, um, and and he absolutely relied on sales or marketing. So mm -hmm. so. He saw sales and marketing as a mm. as a business partner. Yeah, it's really interesting. You look across those type of firms, and you know that saying, um, "Finders, minders, and grinders." Yeah, and they'll yeah. say our partners love minding and grinding, yeah. but they hate finding. Yeah, yeah. But very few of them know how to, you know, really work in a dynamic business development culture. Yeah, um, that's right. I think that's mm. right. And I think they. That, um, I don't know whether it's the same at, at PwC now, but I think they set up these roles that were the kind of sales and marketing roles in each of the business units. Yeah. And um, interestingly enough, that was really my first um, that was my first foray up to Brisbane. I'd been up to Brisbane a number of times, but um, the accounting division was trying to win the Suncorp Metway account. Okay. And um, I was allocated as the lead, mm -hmm. the project lead, to win the account. Mm -hmm. And I actually moved to Brisbane for about six months. And um, I lived down underneath the Story Bridge in the Adina oh, yeah, Apartments yeah. for six months. All and right. and uh, we walked, uh, PwC was in e number one Eagle Street. Mm -hmm. um, I think they've moved from there now. But um, So I lived there for six months and I walked along the river every day and absolutely loved it. And interestingly enough, um, every time, when I, got the, the, when I got this job at AIM, before I moved up to Brisbane, when I came up here, I stayed in the Adena Apartments because right. I just have such great memories of it. Yeah. So, no, I absolutely loved my time at, at uh, PwC. I was very, very fond of it. I thought it was a, I thought it was a truly um, uh, very inspirational place to work and a truly partner-based, mm -hmm. uh, partnership-based place to work. Mm -hmm. The problem I had really at PricewaterhouseCoopers was that I travelled so much. Right. And um, I moved to. I, I, I did a. I did a. A job on Suncorp Metway in Brisbane and then I did Tower Insurance where I lived in Wellington for mm -hmm. a few months and then they wanted me to go and work on the NAB down in Melbourne and uh, for about 18 months I wasn't in, at home in mm -hmm. Sydney mm -hmm. so yeah so I decided um, I, I decided to uh, to leave after two years but I absolutely I absolutely loved it I thought it was mm -hmm. great really great leaders there mm. and so as you said you know there's quite a segue here yeah. uh, into you know the the NFP orientation. Yeah. So what um, granted PwC too much travel, but yeah. what what else was it that was happening there that caused you to have well, quite a substantive change? Well, I think um, I, I left PwC and um, I didn't. I, I have to admit, Richard, I didn't. I didn't know what to do. I'd had enough of travelling. I'd lived away from home. I, I had a beautiful apartment um, down in McMahon's Point in Sydney. 
um, overlooking the harbour. And I hadn't seen it very much for 18 months because I'd been traveling so much. And um, I decided to quit and um, I, I left and um, I was single. I didn't really know what to do. And um, I had a real yearning to, to go back into learning and, and mm -hmm. do something again. And so I went back to university. Mm -hmm. So I went along to see the head of psych at um, University of Western Sydney. Um, and I had, um, I just had this idea that I wanted to, to write and study again. Mm -hmm. So um, I decided to go back and I wrote an honours thesis um, on motivation. So back into psych. Mm -hmm. And um, I got a spot in, in the psych department and I uh, wrote my honours thesis on the motivation to exercise um, okay. uh, amongst kids in, yeah. in school. And um, that took me two years. So I mm -hmm. took two years off, essentially. Mm -hmm. And it was really just during that time that um, I think I was just working in a local shop or something right. like that. And, okay. uh, my life was really simple. I was going off to uni. I was reading books again. I was really enjoying it. And then when that came to an end, when I'd passed my honours thesis and, and I got my certificate, I kind of thought, do I really want to go back to, mm -hmm. to the, to the for-profit sector? And um, the, more I, the more I analysed the answer to that question, the more I realised that the answer was no. I, right. I wanted to do something completely different. And I remember I was sitting, um, I was sitting at the swimming pool at Milson's Point, the public swimming pool at Milson's Point on a hot day, um, I'd just graduated from university, I had my honours thesis, I'd done it, and I opened the Sydney Morning Herald, and on the second page of the Sydney Morning Herald there was an ad as the head of marketing and communications at Canteen, right? the kids' cancer charity. Yeah. And um, I thought, oh, that sounds really good, I know about marketing, I know about mm -hmm. communications, working for a kids' cancer charity sounds absolutely fantastic. And um, I applied for the job, and... Um, I got all the way through the interview processes, through the recruitment consultant, and da 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 da, and um, I ended up, um, I ended up being shortlisted for the job, and then the chief exec, mm -hmm. um, uh, a really good manager and leader, called me in, called me in and said, "Look, Dave, we'd like to offer you the job, mm -hmm. but there's something you need to know about the organisation," and I said, "Oh, you know what's that?" And he said, um, "The financial controller." is about to go to court for stealing money. Right. So, and sure enough, um, mm -hmm. and he said it's about, there's about to be a big expose on the news, and it's all public, all in the public yeah. domain, This it was on 60 Minutes. Right, okay. And he said, so if you take this job, you're walking in as the head of marketing and comms into an environment that is going to get very, very heated and put under the spotlight. Mm -hmm. And I said, I'll take it straight away. Right. <laughs> this sounds fantastic. You know, <laughs> ter absolutely terrible, of course, that the financial controller had stolen however much he'd stolen. He got, um, he, sure enough, he, he went to court and he was sentenced to eight years mm -hmm. for, for stealing. Mm -hmm. But essentially that job at Canteen was a turnaround job mm -hmm. because um, the organization was in a mess. Mm -hmm. So I was recruited as as the marketing and communications manager, and the very the very first thing I had to do was put out the fire of sixty minutes contacting mm. those and right. talking about theft and all of that kind of stuff. And I think the board left, and uh, the chief exec put together a new board, okay. and and really he, um, myself, and his leadership team, and then the the people beneath us rebuilt mm -hmm. that that organisation. Mm -hmm. I stayed there for five years. It mm -hmm. was. It was just sensational. It was. It, it ended up as a, as a um, a real high point on on my mm -hmm. CV. And my first um, 
my first foray into membership organisations because Canteen was a membership organisation and not for profits. Mm -hmm. And um, I ended up heading up marketing, communication and fundraising. So I ran all the fundraising there. And that was, you know, National Bandana Day Mm -hmm. and big partnerships with organisations. And it was just um, Mm -hmm. absolutely fantastic. And so what, at the end of... Four or five years, five you years. just felt your time was done? Oh, look, I'll, I'll be really honest. I um, I wanted to be a chief exec. Right. By the t- I, want, I wanted my boss's job. Sure. But, but, um, but Andrew, um, Andrew, the chief exec, wasn't, wasn't going anywhere. And, uh, but I did five years. Mm-hmm. As, and I think five years in a, in a, in a comms and marketing sure. fundraising role is a, is a long time. So I recruited my replacement. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I, was, uh, I was attracted... Uh, I was approached about a job um, which was really too good an opportunity to um, to turn down because um, the St. George and Sutherland Medical Research Foundation didn't exist mm-hmm. as an organisation. Um, I was recruited to set, to set up a not-for-profit mm-hmm. and um, you have very, very few opportunities to set something up from scratch. So essentially um, St. George Hospital in Sydney is one of the biggest teaching hospitals in Australia. They didn't have a medical research foundation. And um, Westpac Bank, or St. George at the time, before they got taken over by Westpac, St. George Bank had agreed to help the hospital set up a research foundation by paying for the chief exec. Right. So I was actually recruited, would you believe, by St. George Bank. Okay. So my salary was paid by St. George Bank, Mm -hmm. but my job was to set up a Mm not-for-profit, which is a really unusual setup. It's a fantastic example of philanthropy in the Mm -hmm. community. Um, it, the deal was done with Gail Kelly mm-hmm. when she was the head of okay. St George, and she then became the head of Westpac. And um, they, St George, signed a five-year partnership agreement mm-hmm. and a five-year contract with me mm-hmm. to set up um, a, a full not-for-profit. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, on day one at the, at the St George and Sutherland Medical Research Foundation, um, they had nothing in the bank. They had no branding, no strategy, nothing. They had mm-hmm. nothing. Um, they had a board of directors. And they recruited me as the chief exec. Mm. And essentially, my job was to set it up. And so that was not a situation where you were applying for a role in the open market. They approached you specifically. I think it had been advertised, actually. Right. I think the job had been advertised. A headhunter approached me while I was okay. at Canteen. Yep. And um, I think I was... I think they... Mm-hmm. I remember there was... I went through about five or six different interviews and I was, I was shortlisted. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I took the job, and the, the day that I joined, there was a board meeting that mm. evening. So I went into the board, and they basically said, we just need this to be set up. Right, okay. And so uh, you'd had this desire to become a CEO. Yeah. This is your first CEO gig. And yeah. when you did a sort of a, an inventory of your own skill set, you know, were there clear areas where you, you thought to yourself, gee, I've got some gaps here, I'm going to have to work hard to fill those in quickly? Oh, look, I think the answer to that question is no. <laughs> I think uh, when I took my first CEO job, I thought I think I thought I knew it all. Right. And I think, um, oh, look, when I think back now, um, I think uh, one of the problems was I'd, I'd served on the leadership team of mm-hmm. Canteen and I'd been into a number of board meetings, almost every board meeting. Mm-hmm. I'd come in and talk about marketing or fundraising or something like that. But I really didn't understand what the role of the CEO is. Yeah. I, I would sit there perhaps and look at um, what the CEO of Canteen was doing, but I never really saw the politics and mm-hmm. the intricate... And mm-hmm. when I say politics, I don't mean that in a nasty way. Sure. I think politics has a dirty yeah, word, yeah. but yeah. Um, the way you have to balance stakeholders in an mm-hmm. organisation, I think, is... Um, 
I think one of the one of the one of the things I've learned in my almost ten years, nine years as a chief exec or a head of country head or something mm-hmm. like that, is you, you're juggling s- stakeholders. Mm. Somebody once said, and it might have even been you, Richard. It's it's one of the loneliest jobs in the world, mm. and I don't think I'd realised that. I think my first CEO role, um, I thought I knew it all, right, and I thought I knew more than the board. Mm. And in some senses, I did, of course, because I knew how to set mm-hmm. a not-for-profit up. But there was much more to it than mm. that. And so how long was it that you were in the role before you started to get this realisation? I think I'm still getting it. <laughs> oh, no, I think... Um, look, I think... Um, well, look, f- the first thing to say is I don't want to be too hard on myself. I think a- anyone's first major leadership mm. role is always going to be a learning... Mm. It's going to be a journey, isn't sure. it? But when I look back, I think um, I went at things like a bull in a china shop, mm-hmm. you know, and I think I think my advice, if, I, if I'm qualified to give anybody advice about how to be a CEO or a, or a leader, is to, is to take things quite slowly and, mm-hmm. and work out what your stakeholders want. Mm-hmm. Or, um, and I think the other thing you, that I learned and perhaps I didn't realise at the time was um, particularly boards of not-for-profits, um, they're, they're voluntary boards in mm-hmm. many ways mm-hmm. and... Um, they have different um, they have different calls on their time, mm-hmm. particularly at, a, at the Medical Research Foundation. They were primarily medical staff, mm-hmm. and they're incredibly busy. You know, they're in operating mm. theatres sure. and things like that. So, um, I tended, and I, I still do actually in many ways. I tend to be quite consultative, mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, that that sounds like a very positive thing, but sometimes it's perhaps not. Mm-hmm. So I tend to. Um, ask lots of questions and sometimes people don't have time to mm-hmm. answer so I think sometimes you um, sometimes you have to make those decisions yourself mm-hmm. and I, I tended it at the beginning of that and I guess a lot of it came from perhaps a bit of insecurity mm-hmm. because it was my first role mm. so I think I've lost a little bit of that over time but I do tend to consult a lot and I think um, I think perhaps uh, perhaps sometimes you've got to have the courage of your convictions to make the decision and stand by it yourself, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, again, in that role for about five years, seems yeah. to be a bit of a, you know, sort of common theme in terms of yeah. longevity in roles. Yeah. Um, when you look back over that five years, you know, what's something that was achieved that you're really oh. proud of? Oh, I mean, um, well, first of all, um, we, we set, uh, myself and the board and, and eventually the staff, we set up the the research foundation it literally had nothing in the bank like i think mm. i even opened the bank account um at st george of course <laughs> and uh, we got it for free um when i left the organization was financially stable mm-hmm. we'd we provided a million dollars to research grants and just before i left uh, we made an episode of australian story right uh, where i took a bunch of um, medical staff and a very severely brain injured um, patient from mm-hmm. the hospital we walked the Kokoda track okay. with a film crew from oh, Australian fantastic. Story it was called Long Walk Back right. and it was charting ch- it charted Chloe's recovery right so she walked the Kokoda track with the doctor that saved her life in intensive care right. and the nurse that saved her life wow. and I narrated the story on, on Australian Story and um, in actual fact, the, the, the interesting thing is that's the second Australian story I've made. I made one at Canteen right. where we took a, um, a bunch of young people who'd had a cancer experience to the top of Mount Kilimanjaro. Mm-hmm. 
And um, the the same team that made that Australian story at the ABC made the second one, so okay. I kept the contacts. Right. So, um, and it was really after that that I knew that my time was done mm -hmm. at the Research Foundation mm -hmm. because um, the fifth iteration of the strategy was that we would get what's essentially a, um, a, a district hospital, if you mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. a major hospital in Sydney, but only a small part of Sydney in, in the south of Sydney. We would get them national exposure. Mm -hmm. um, that episode of Australian Story led to a huge donation by the state government mm -hmm. for about half a million dollars. And really at that point, and it also led to the continuation of St George Bank's five-year commitment. Mm -hmm. And at that point, um, it was time to move on. I'd done mm -hmm. my job. And I think um, in the not-for-profit sector, chief execs can can hang around. You know, mm -hmm. you need fresh ideas and sure. fresh impetus. And and five years is, is, is quite mm -hmm. a long time when you've set something up. And um, I'm, I think I have to admit that I'm, I'm very good at setup. I, mm -hmm. I, I really enjoy the creative side of mm -hmm. of, of 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 leadership, mm -hmm. and I like the ideas. And then I like bringing the team together to implement the ideas. I'm not the I'm not um, the kind of chief exec that does steady state, mm -hmm. that just comes in to manage things. Mm -hmm. I like change, and mm -hmm. I like leading change. And the the research foundation needed a different kind of mm. person to manage what had been set up. Okay, so at that point, off to the Association of Chartered Certified Accountants. Yeah, so I um I, I took a bit of time off. Actually, my second daughter was born, mm -hmm. so um, Olive. So I took about three months off um, between the research foundation and um, and what came next. And I didn't know what was going to come next, so I. Um, but the Research Foundation, so Canteen was a member-based organisation. Mm. The members happened to be young people living with cancer, but still mm -hmm. a member-based organisation. And the Research Foundation was a membership-based organisation. The membership were medical staff. Mm -hmm. So um, it looks like different kind of roles, but actually, um, they're actually quite similar. Mm -hmm. Managing stakeholders, looking after members, uh, making sure that the, the organisation is geared around the needs of the membership. And um, I got a call from a recruitment consultant that said, oh, do you want to come and work for, for ACCA, mm -hmm. the Association of Chartered Certified Accountants? I'd never heard of them. And um, I, I, was, I was at a bit of a loose end, actually, one afternoon. And um, I went along to the recruitment consultant. And I have to admit, I wasn't actually that impressed when I'd met the recruitment consultant. About the role? Yeah, I, 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 um, I didn't know too much about accounting. I, mm -hmm. I went back to my PricewaterhouseCoopers days, of mm -hmm. course, and that's what, that's what got me the interview, I suppose. And um, and um, what actually switched me on to the role was when I met the person that would turn out to be my boss. Right. And uh, her name was May Law. Mm -hmm. She was the head of ACCA for Asia Pacific. She lived in Hong Kong and she was utterly inspirational. Mm -hmm. Had a really good um, outlook on leadership, really good outlook on work-life balance and uh, was an absolute inspirational boss. And I, I, I told her there and then in the interview that I wanted to work for her. Okay. Isn't that interesting that you can have such a perception one yeah. way having met the recruiter and then it'd be <laughs> almost 180% right. uh, yeah. uh, turnaround. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Because people, you know, people, it comes back to my role now, people work for people. Mm. And I think my job at ACCA, it wasn't um, a tremendous amount of respect for that organisation, by the way, global accounting body based out of London, um, a, a really innovative organisation that um, looks to the developing world 
and, and helping people out of poverty through mm -hmm. accounting mm -hmm. in, in, in the developing world. But actually, people work for people. And mm -hmm. I, I joined ACCA because of, of May Law. Mm -hmm. Like She was an inspirational leader mm -hmm. and uh, knew about strategy, was happy to allow me to set the strategy for the organization in Australia and New Zealand, allowed me to recruit my own team, allowed me to move offices and all of those things that I think are absolutely important for a leader to do, mm -hmm. um, she, she allowed me to do. And then she left. Right. <laughs> so I'd been in the role for, I'd only been in the role for 18 months and okay. she left. And was I, that the beginning of the end for that role for you then? Well, interestingly, yeah. It, it, actually, I'll be really honest, I applied for her role. Mm -hmm. So when she left, I applied for her role and the role would have been based in Hong Kong. And, and um, the problem is, the head of Asia Pacific in, in ACCA needs to be a Mandarin speaker with a really good right. really good grasp of the Chinese sure. market. Yeah. And um, the role went to somebody else. And uh, just at that time, AIM came up. Mm -hmm. And um, and uh, I was, I've, I've just got this um, absolute passion. And you can probably tell through, through my career this real desire mm. and um, I'm so switched on by leadership mm -hmm. and what makes leaders tick mm -hmm. and um, the principles of leadership and and um, this idea that people work for people and mm. that people work in organizations that they mm. that they respect and they um, they like you know and so you were coming into aim at a period of substantive change mm. they were essentially selling a large portion of the business mm. into private equity uh, mm. And there were a whole heap of other things going mm. on. So, what was the mandate for the role? Well, I think I think I got I got interviewed by the board um, of, of AIM, and and um, I think I met all of the board. Um, I did. I remember I did a presentation to four of the board um, at one of the Qantas lounges, mm -hmm. and um, I think I'd sum it up like this. I think we're a seven. We were at the time a seventy-five year start year old startup. Mm -hmm. So, so we'd started as the peak body for managers and leaders and we'd morphed into a training and education business. And then for one reason or another, I won't go into the reasons, it doesn't matter, the training and education business um, had become something different, the world had moved on. And, and AIM um, didn't know what it was and what it wanted to be anymore. Mm -hmm. And the, the board did exactly the right thing. They decided to leave training and education to people that know how to run it mm. and to go back to its roots of being the peak body for managers and leaders. And when that picture was painted to me through the interview process, it was the most exciting thing I'd ever heard. Mm -hmm. Because in a sense, it was a startup again. Mm -hmm. So I joined with six or seven staff, mm -hmm. and there are now 48, mm. and I've been in the role for 14 months. Sure. And it's, um, so it, it's, it, it's in many ways, it's a combination of all those other roles mm -hmm. that I've had. Every single role that I've had, I can see an element of it in, in the role I've got at AIM, you know, it's 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 setting up a new business. It's mm -hmm. it's um, it's membership. It's it's leadership, and it's it's HR. It's mm -hmm. all of those those kind of things. So in, I think in many ways I feel like I've come home. Mm. So I've I've, I've taken, um, and that's the beauty of. I'm, I'm hoping that some of your listeners would would also agree that sometimes you look back on your career and you can take all these pieces and think, oh, right, this is where I've ended up where I am you know I'm not a social worker I'm not mm -hmm. in politics mm -hmm. but I've I've ended up in a in a leadership role that absolutely suits what I believe in because I'm I, I'm a leader but I'm advocating for leadership mm -hmm. I can't think of any mm -hmm. I can't think of anything better you know mm -hmm. and certainly from a marketing communications perspective 
there would be very, very few uh, professional people in leadership roles in Australia mm. that wouldn't have some view of what AIM is. I think that's you right. You know, they would have been touched at some point. They would have been to a course or been a member or been in the awards. or yeah. So a big part of, you know, uh, facilitating the change required requires substantive uh, marketing communications yeah. to essentially re-engineer the business in the eyes of the consumer. Oh, I think I'm, I'm going to put that in a, in, a, in a different way, Richard. I think um, I'm going to say exactly the same thing, but I'll say it like this. There is a weight of responsibility on, on me mm. and on my team, all of my team, whatever they do in the organisation, there's a weight of responsibility because we are the current representatives of that 75-year history. Mm -hmm. And all of those people that have touched this organisation through training and education, even though we don't do training and education anymore, mm -hmm. we're still very close to the organisation that does, um, that, that have been involved in our Leadership Excellence Awards, that have been along to International Women's Day, for example. We do a number of those events. We carry the responsibility for all of those people because mm -hmm. there is an expectation and there's a quality in this brand um, that we have to maintain mm. as we change the organisation mm. into what it is now, which mm -hmm. is the peak body for managers mm -hmm. and leaders. And um, I'm, I'm very proud to lead this organisation, but that responsibility weighs heavy on mm -hmm. my shoulders. Mm. You know? So, for example, the best example I've got is we're moving out of Management House mm -hmm. here at 369 Boundary Street. Now, we, we've been here for 30-odd years. Mm -hmm. And um, this, this, this building has changed and has been extend, extended and all of those kind of things, but we're moving out. And we don't take that decision lightly and we have to explain to our membership why we're doing that. I, I know that it's the right decision, mm -hmm. but, but you, don't, um, you, you don't ride roughshod mm -hmm. over, those, over the history that this organisation's had. You have to respect it. Well, considering that some of your fellows yeah. uh, have been you know, members for... You 60 know, years in some a long, cases. A long time, yeah. that's right. So there's a lot of, it's almost in some respects not dissimilar to a club like yeah. uh, Tattersall's Club or the Brisbane yeah. Club or equivalent clubs yeah. in other cities where you've got, you know, people who mm. like tradition and, and, you know, they probably need a degree of sensitivity in terms of how you manage yeah. the communication of the change. Yeah. And there seems to be quite a lot of exciting things coming up. So when you're looking, you know, to the future over the next, say, two to three years, yeah. you know, what are some of the initiatives that you're, mm -hmm. you know, really looking forward to? Look, I think um, I, I, there's one initiative in particular I'll, I'll talk about, but I'll just tell you why we're doing it. Um, we need to become the voice of management and leadership in Australia. Mm. Um, we need to be the organisation that advocates for and defines good management and leadership. Now, I firmly believe that we couldn't be that organisation if we're doing education and training, because education and training is something different. Mm. Um, but we need to be the voice of good management and leadership. That involves a number of things. One of the things it demands is that we define what good management and leadership looks like. There's mm -hmm. no point saying we believe in it if we can't define what it is. Um, so uh, we're putting on a management and leadership conference. Um, it's on the 19th of October in Brisbane um, at, the, at the Sofitel. It's our first um, conference that we've put on for a while, mm -hmm. um, a good few years. And uh, we're looking at seven skills of management and leadership. Mm -hmm. And we've got, we've got um, speakers coming in in each of those skill areas. We're 
we're going to do different kinds of sessions, you know, panel discussions, those kind of things. That's exactly the kind of direction that we need to be going in mm -hmm. as an organisation. We need to be putting a stake in the ground and saying, as the peak body for managers and leaders, this is what we believe, this is why we believe it, of course. It has mm -hmm. to be founded in research, and I have a research team. And then we have to build around that products and services that support our view of good management and leadership. The conference is one of them. It's um, I found out this morning from a team, it's almost sold out. Mm, great. Yeah, there's only about 25 tickets left mm -hmm. for that. So um, I think those are the kind of things. I think the other thing that we're going to be doing is expanding our mentoring program. Mm -hmm. um, AIM has a, a sensational mentoring program. Of course we do. We have um, a huge cohort mm. of very professional managers and leaders. Mm -hmm. um, so if you want to mentor in, in, in the Australian marketplace, this is the professional body where you can find that person. Mm -hmm. And um, I think we'll see an expansion of our um, mentoring program over the next couple of years. I also think um, we'll be expanding our networking. Um, we have a philosophy in AIM called Networking is Working. Uh, we ran National Networking Day this year. I see us expanding that in coming years. Mm. Our, our role as a peak body is to bring managers and leaders together to learn from each other mm -hmm. and to spread the word of good management mm. and leadership. Well, having been at that event and <laughs> also <were. laughs> uh, having been at the recent Management of, uh, and Leadership Awards, yeah. I mean, uh, you're doing a great job there. And, and certainly I think that there is a definite gap in the market between mm. the provider of formal education, MBAs, et cetera, and yeah. bodies like the AICD. Uh, you know, there is a, 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 a tremendous opportunity here. Yeah. And uh, and you haven't mentioned the book as well, which I know oh. you're quite excited about. <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. Um, so, yeah, I haven't, I haven't mentioned the book, which surprises me, actually, because I mentioned that to everybody. Um, so, yeah, no, we've, we've, um, we've secured a global publishing deal for... Um, and quite right, too. You know, we, we, we are... Um, I, I, again, I'm adamant about this. We're, we are the peak body for managers and leaders. So... Um, when it comes to our view on leadership, our view should matter because mm -hmm. we have that view and we are the peak body for managers and leaders. So we've signed a global publishing deal for a book, uh, which by coincidence is called Leadership Matters, um, Seven Skills of Very Successful Leaders. It will be released in April next year. It's currently being written. There are seven chapters looking at the seven skills that we've, we, that we've identified as being core to good management and leadership. Mm -hmm. One of them, for example, um, some of them are very obvious, you know, setting strategy, leading people, defining culture, those kind of things. Um, but there's also going to be a chapter on ethical leadership. Mm -hmm. um, we, we believe that an ethical foundation lies at the heart of every manager and leader and every management and leadership style. So there'll be a chapter on ethical leadership. And um, part of the book um, has seen me go and interview some global leaders about some of these traits or, or aspects or skills of leadership. So yeah, that's coming up next year. And mm -hmm. I see us being able to build on that platform. So I see future publications that mm -hmm. That, that aim aim could could come up with yeah mm -hmm. okay fantastic and what about for yourself personally what you know if you look towards your career uh, in the next sort of ten years or so what kind of things do you still aspire to be doing well I wouldn't mind I still hold this desire to go into politics really? at some point but I don't. Um, I mean, Australian politics, <laughs> what do you want me to say? <laughs> I've got uh, way too many skeletons in the closet for that. <laughs> no, I've not got that many skeletons, actually. Right. But um, oh, look, I don't know. Has that ship sailed? I've got no idea. Um, oh, I don't know. I mean, I think that the interesting thing when I look back, I'm just looking down at my CV, which um, has got all your pink pen all over it, Richard. Um, 
Who, who'd have thought that I've, I would have ended up as a chief exec? Mm. Well, you know, when I left university or when I left home in Manchester to come back to the start of the interview, who'd have thought that I'd be sitting in Brisbane yeah. as the chief exec of AIM um, with a 75-year history? You know, I, who, who'd, who'd have thought that? I've got no idea where I'm going to end up. Right. <laughs> Is your dad still around? Yeah, my mum my and dad actually are coming to Brisbane for the first time. I spoke to them this morning on Skype. Okay. So they're coming, uh, they're coming to visit me in, uh, in November. And I'll be showing them the sights right. of Brisbane. and um, They'll be loving the heat. They'll be absolutely loving the heat, yeah. <laughs> well, they must be very proud, I'm sure. <laughs> oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure they are. They never tell me. <laughs> uh, and just uh, to wind it up, David, because I appreciate you've got lots to do. Uh, uh, we've talked a lot about work today, but when mm. you're not working, what are the things you like to do to remain fresh and you know filled with vitality? Well, if I tell you um, uh, this evening I'll be running home, so we're sitting here in the Spring Hill office, um, I live in Belimba, and I'll be um, I'll be running um, along along the riverfront. Um, so I run I run a fair bit. So I'm running a, a half marathon on Saturday, actually the run for refugees. Right. Um, so I'm a very very keen runner. I've got two um, two young young daughters, Olive and Pearl. Um, so when I'm not running, I'm running after them uh. <laughs> around the garden. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, look, David, I really appreciate you taking the time today. Thanks yeah, very thanks, much Richard. and uh, have a fantastic afternoon. Yeah, thanks very much. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Cheers. Well, I hope that you have a fantastic week ahead. I look forward to having you along for future episodes of the Arate podcast. And if there's anyone in particular that you think would make a good guest, Perhaps they come from a business career or perhaps they come from another career where they've achieved outstanding results that people would enjoy listening to. I'd welcome you referring them to me so that I can potentially discuss their appearance on the Arate podcast. Have fun, achieve great things, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. Yeah.